from our epistle reading this morning. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. If you glance down at your bulletin at the Collect of the Day, you'll notice that our prayer this week asks God to cleanse and defend the church, and then later to protect and govern the church by God's goodness. But to what does the word church refer? What is it that we're talking about? We're asking God to cleanse and defend, to protect and to govern. What do we mean by church? Well, it gets a bit more tricky than, than you might think at first. If you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll see that word again. They're in conjunction with other words, all souls Anglican. Are we asking God to cleanse and defend all souls Anglican church? Or if you even flip back over to page three in your bulletin and look at the Nicene Creed, you'll see the phrase that we pray to God. We re- there's a reference to one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Or even if you crack open your prayer book in the pew, you'll see that word in conjunction with our prayer book being according to the use of the Anglican Church in North America, our province or our denomination. Is that to what we're referring? Or to make matters worse or more complicated, maybe some of you this morning on your way out the door were uh, maybe saying to your kids, come on, we're going to church. Or you said to your roommate, hey, see you later, I'm going to church. By which you meant like this building here. Are we asking God to cleanse and defend this building? I don't see any armies on the lawn, but there's a few cobwebs around here which the Lord is welcome to take care of. Well, unfortunately, church is one of those words that can refer to numerous entities, and it's perhaps it's only by context or implicature that we can grasp the meaning in a given sentence. But I think our readings from Hebrews and Isaiah paint a, a picture of the church as God's special people who are in a process of aligning their values, their ideas, and their actions with God's own nature. And these people, the church, stand in an unbroken line of continuity with the people of God called as his own special people through the Old Covenant. But the church, us, we now have entered into a special relationship with God through Jesus, his own son, in the New Covenant. And so we can continue to align our values, our ideas, and our actions with God's nature, which is his goodness. Simply put, the church is God's people doing God things. We jump into the letter to the Hebrews in verse 18 of chapter 12, if you want to turn there. Last week we saw how previously in this chapter the author was, was reminding us that Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith journey, and that he's thus with us every step of the way, especially in seasons of new beginnings, like maybe many of us are facing this month or or even this week. Today we start in verse 18, and there's like this really crazy imagery of fire and darkness and gloom, which if you don't catch the allusion to the book of Exodus, this is going to seem really oddly out of place. What the author is doing here is looking back to one of the, if not the, most significant events for the people of God, God's meeting with God's people on Mount Sinai. Of course, our reading here is from the letter to the Hebrews, so we shouldn't be surprised that the author is alluding to one of the most hugely significant events in Hebrew history, which we read about in Exodus chapter 19. This is the sort of thing we see in good literature, right, all all the time, or good movies, a glance back an allusion to something significant in the past that then is uh, interpreted or reinterpreted in light of some plot twist. 
I think we can't overemphasize the importance that this Sinai event had in forging the people of Israel into the people of God. So let's catch a little bit of the backstory to this scene in Exodus 19, starting all the way back in the book of Genesis. So in the beginning, God created... Just kidding, that's a little bit too far back. Yeah. Don't need to go back that far. We can start with Abraham. Remember, uh, God chose Abraham and Sarah and told them that he was going to take them to this new place, uh, a new land. And in this land, he would make Abraham's descendants a great people, a, a special people, a people who would be God's people and have a special relationship with him. And this special relationship then continues on with Abraham's kids through Isaac and Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel. And we recall the story of one of Israel's sons, Joseph, and how that whole fiasco resulted in moving the family of Jacob, the people of Israel, into Egypt. And there God's people grew and expanded and eventually became enslaved by the Egyptians and in that process began to forget their special relationship with God. And then that takes us to the book of Exodus where God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt and takes them out to the desert to the base of the mountain called Sinai. And that's where we pick up this scene here in Exodus 19 at, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is to what the author in Hebrews is alluding. So at this point in Exodus 19, Moses goes up to the mountain um, with the people at the base. And God says to Moses, rough Arkady translation, says, talk to the people of Israel and tell them this. You've seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you out to me. If you'll listen obediently to what I say and keep my covenant, out of all the peoples, you'll be my special treasure. The whole earth is mine to choose from, but you will be my special people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And I think what's going on here is God is telling Moses that he wants to renew and, and reestablish a unique relationship with the descendants of Abraham. God here in Exodus 19 is taking steps to make good on the promise he had made to Abraham generations previously. But then it comes in this story, in which the author of Hebrews is alluding to, is this crazy scene that we need, like, the best CGI to depict. So God tells to Moses, says, take care not to go up, tell the people not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Don't touch that mountain. And the story goes on. On the morning of the third day after they had got there, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet blast so loud that all the people in the camp trembled. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet, trumpet grew louder and louder. Now that's some crazy stuff. And this is what the author in Hebrews is, is picking up on. Because when he alludes to this scene on Sinai, he's making a, a juxtaposition between two mountains, a juxtaposition between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, which comes in verse 22 in Hebrews 12. And so in juxtaposing these two mountains, the author, I think, is thereby making a juxtaposition between two ways of relating to God, two ways of being God's special people. Two ways that don't stand in opposition to one another, or at least so I think, but rather flow in continuity with one another. The people of God under the old covenant came to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and were like freaked out beyond belief, trembling with fear. 
Now, they were God's chosen people, God's special people, but God was, like, terrifying them beyond their wits. And even Moses, the God-chosen leader of the God-chosen people, even Moses was trembling with fear at the terror of the presence of God. But you, says the author of the letter to the Hebrews, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come not to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, trembling with fear, but you've come to Jesus, God's own son, who is the mediator of a new covenant. This covenant was not made through the blood of sheep or bulls, but through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And in this sense, we might say perhaps that even a third mountain is alluded to, that is Mount Calvary. The people of God, the church, are those who stand in a line of succession from Abraham to the present. God's people were initiated in this promise to Abraham that was then renewed and and codified on Mount Sinai and then renewed and reestablished on Mount Zion and then guaranteed on Mount Calvary where Christ's blood inaugurated a new covenant that God's people continue to this day in the covenantal acts of baptism in the Eucharist. The church is God's special people. More than that, the church is God's people doing God things. So in verse 28 there of Hebrews 12, the author provides maybe a bit of a practical application. He says, therefore, let us give thanks. In light of being God's special people, and in light of coming into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as the author puts it, In light of receiving the inheritance due to those who are the descendants of Abraham, let us be grateful. Now, as much uh, of a fan of gratitude I am, that still feels a bit vague to me. Dare I say, maybe an impractical application. Are we just supposed to have these, like, warm fuzzies for God? Well, I think there's at at least two ways of expressing our gratitude for being God's people. One explicit here in Hebrews, and then one I think kind of implicit, but explicit in our Isaiah reading. So explicit here in Hebrews is what the author goes on to say. Let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, as an Anglican priest uh, wearing robes and in front of an organ, I can't help but be like, yes, we can do this. Bring on the reverence and awe. Let's give thanks by doing the Eucharist. I think that's totally right. I think that's apt. The church is where we worship God with reverence and awe in spirit and in truth. And our, our sacramental worship, especially the Eucharist, is a key opportunity we have to give thanks to the author, to give thanks to God, as the author of, of Hebrews here explicitly commends. But I suspect if you're here at All Souls, I don't need to sell you on that. I think there's also, however, an, an implicit way to give thanks And this is by our behavior and our actions. Uh, Our behavior and our actions need to be governed by God's goodness, as our colleague says. And here again, God says in Isaiah 28, God says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Thus, whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. I'll make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. The plumb line. I've only ever used a plumb line a couple of times in, in my life, um, but I have used a level uh, at times, like yesterday when I was hanging pictures up at my house. 
And the purpose of a plumb line or a level is, is to, to see if some object is straight or, or plumb according to a standard, standard of gravity in, in these cases. Well, for us, for, for human behavior, God here in Isaiah says that justice and righteousness will be the standards that he will establish. And so I see God's goodness in our collect and the justice and righteousness of Isaiah 28:17 is roughly referring to the same thing. God's standards of goodness, God's standards of justice, God's standards of righteousness are what the people of God need to be governed by. Or governed perhaps isn't the word we use all that much in our lives. It's more like what we need to be a pattering our, pattern our lives on or, or modeling our lives on. And the values and ideas that we have or the actions that we take are to line up with God's justice and God's righteousness. So we give thanks to God explicitly through our worship with reverence and awe, and we give thanks to God implicitly when we pattern our behavior and our actions on God's standards of justice, goodness, and righteousness. God's people do God things. So the church then is God's people worshiping in reverence and awe by means of these new covenant practices of baptism in the Eucharist and modeling our ideas and behavior according to the to the standards that God has revealed to us in scripture and in creation, highlighted through our studying and preaching of God's word. The church is God's people doing God things. Now that we hopefully have a little bit better of understanding of one word in the collect, let me pray it again. Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, Protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.